In November of 2021, our First Church family launched a two-year courageous journey of kingdom expansion that was driven by our desire to reach the 918 and beyond with the life-changing good news of Jesus Christ. We called this two-year journey unstoppable because of Jesus' words in Matthew 16, 18, when he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. See, for the past 2,000 years, Satan has been trying to stop the mission and the work of God's church because he knows the church is God's chosen instrument to change the world through his son. And for 2,000 years, Satan has tried to use things like persecution and pressure, politics, even pandemics, to stop the mission of the church, and yet he has not succeeded. And we believe today God still isn't finished using and empowering his church. Church is never the underdog. We are never the underdog. How can you be the underdog when you have on your side the one who fed the multitudes, the one who walked on water? How can you be the underdog when the one who walked out of the tomb and defeated the grave is with you and on your side? And it's a big job that Jesus has given us to change the world one life at a time. But we can do it, you know why? Because Jesus has promised, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Yeah, you can clap for that. Words cannot describe what we've seen God do over the past two years here at First Church. If you're new, my name's Chad, welcome. You're here for a very special day. We're going to be jumping into our Alpha and Omega series here in just a moment. But before we do, we've got some things to celebrate. Because two years ago, in November of 2021, we launched our Unstoppable Initiative. And this initiative had two goals. Our primary goal, our first goal, was 100% engagement. We want our church to engage in the mission of Jesus like never before. But then our second goal, we said if we got engaged like we needed to be, we would be able to build a new First Kids facility because we had outgrown our kids space upstairs so that we could be investing in the next generation in a powerful way. We wanted this to be a resource that we could use to reach the next generation for Jesus in the upcoming years. 
And so we asked our church family at that point two years ago to basically double our general budget in order to build this new building debt-free. And so we're going to reveal today what the final number was that was given, total dollars given to our Unstoppable Initiative. And to help me do that, I've got some friends that are gonna come out on stage. So if you would welcome them to the stage as they come out here, they've got some numbers they're going to reveal for us. Yeah, come on out, guys. Line up here. They're going to spell the word unstoppable. Now, just to give you a reference point, two years ago, if we were to have maintained our current annual budget over a two-year period, it would have been $5 million over two years if we had maintained our current budget at that time. What we asked you guys to do was to double our current budget over the next two years. You guys committed to giving $10.66 million in change over a two-year period, more than doubling our annual budget. But as we started to look at prices and all that, and we were excited about that, but we were told that it was gonna cost about $11.3 million at that time to maintain our current ministry, but also build our new First Kids building. So our secondary goal became $11.3 million. And over the past two years, our church has been sacrificially giving to unstoppable. And so we want to share actual dollars given. These are not commitments. These are not pledges. These are the actual dollars given towards our Unstoppable Initiative. And so here we go. Zane, are you ready on the end? You want to wave at everybody? You ready to go? All right. We're going to start from the bottom and come up. Here we go. Here we go. Here's our Unstoppable number of dollars given. You want to turn around? $12 million, 11639 Yeah. How incredible is that? Not only did you guys keep your commitments, but we also exceeded our secondary goal of 11.3 by hitting over $12 million. And that's awesome because there's this thing called inflation and the building's gonna cost even more than we thought. But so we appreciate you guys being faithful and I appreciate you guys coming out to reveal this number. So can we give it up for them one more time as they go back, find the stage? Thanks guys, you guys can head on back if you want to. Appreciate it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Good job, guys. Awesome. So not only do I want to thank them, I also want to thank you guys. Because all this happened, because God's gracious hand has been upon us during this season. But you guys had to act in faith. You guys took a risk. You guys took a step of faith. And you trusted in God. And because of that, God used us to accomplish this. And so we definitely have something to celebrate today. But there's even more news to celebrate because I'm not finished just yet. See, we're growing like crazy right now. And you guys know that. But one problem that we have is we're landlocked here on this space. Now we can, you know, make some adjustments still to our building and make some tweaks here and there. But really, we don't have any more land. And it's funny because in 1998, when we were given this piece of property by the, Barkin, uh, by the Larkin Bailey Foundation, we didn't think, at least the leadership at that time didn't think that we would ever outgrow the 20 acres that we were given by Larkin Bailey. But we have. And it's interesting to me because Jesus says, when he tells the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, to those who use well what they are given, even more will be given and they will have an abundance. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. 
See, I believe the reason why God continues to bless us and open doors in this place is because we try to be faithful with what he has given to us. We're not just gonna sit on what he's given to us. We're not gonna bury our talents, but we are going to continue to use what he has given us. And we've seen him continue to give us more and more open doors. And we've had a new open door come before us here recently. See, the Larkin Bailey Foundation still has other land in addition to what they gave us, the hospital in different places years ago. And we found out just, I don't know, a few months ago or so that a commercial business had purchased the land that was directly adjacent to our property. And we were bummed about that because we thought if that land ever came available, we didn't know it was available. If that land ever came available, hopefully that we could maybe possibly get it. But we heard that there was a deal taking place between a commercial business and to get that land and the foundation. And then after we were bummed about it, we then found out that the deal fell through. So we immediately started to contact the foundation to talk to them. And basically after several conversations, they came back to us and they were willing to sell us the land for the price that commercial property is going for right now. And if you don't know that, it's not cheap in this area, but still they were willing to sell it to us. And so they told us that they would sell us 10 acres that's directly adjacent to our property so we would not be landlocked, 10 acres for $1.5 million, which is the going price for commercial property. And so we started to think whether or not we could do that. And then they came back and they said, if you guys will purchase that 10 acres, we will gift you, we will give you five additional acres for free. So 15 total acres for $1.5 million. And so we thought this was a godsend. Yeah, you can clap for that. Yeah, that's exciting that they are making us this offer. Yeah. And so... We have reached an agreement with them, but nothing's finalized yet. It probably won't be finalized until April. We're still doing our due diligence and we're going through all the process that needs to go through. But we thought we'd go ahead and bring you guys in on this because this is what we're looking at. This is our current building that we've got more land over here that's cut off in the picture. This is our current building and we have 20 acres right now that we're sitting on. We're looking at gaining 15 more acres, almost doubling our current footprint, which would be absolutely incredible. Now, let me say a few things. We have no immediate plans for this land. We have some dreams, of course, but we have no immediate plans for this land. But what we are doing is we are paving the way for the next generation because we may use this land sooner rather than later. It's possible. We don't know. It depends on what doors God continues to open. But even if we don't use it immediately, we are paving the way for the next generation so that this church can continue to expand and do more and more ministry in the years to come. Not only that, we also are not going to use any any of our unstoppable money in order to pay for this land because we're going to keep our promise. We said that we'd use the unstoppable money for what we said we're going to use it for and we're going to keep to that. We're going to stick to that. So we're not going to use any unstoppable money. However, what we have discovered by looking at our finances is that if our giving, our current giving continues on the trend that it's been on, we can pay off this 1.5 million. We can pay off the money for the land in about a year and a half. And so I think that is incredible. And that is a great opportunity for us to continue to do what God wants us to do without having to do a separate initiative or something special in order to pay off this land. And I think paying off 15 acres commercial land in a year and a half, that ain't bad, you know, that's exciting. And so I am looking forward to our church continuing to be invested in what we're doing here so that we can do just that. But there's also one other thing I wanna note. We are able to do this because of the steps that we took early on in Unstoppable. 
Because a few years ago, we were not in a financial situation to be able to purchase land like that. But now after Unstoppable, after you guys took a step of faith, took a risk, trusted God, we're now in a spot where we are able to purchase this land to continue to expand the work that God is doing in this place. And so I thank you for your faithfulness and I wanna give all praise to God for him continuing to open doors for us. So this is what we're gonna do before we move into the sermon. Let's stand up and let's pray. And I wanna lift up everything that's going on in this place. And the land that we're talking about is actually right back here, this direction. So if you don't mind, turn and face that direction as we pray. You can get to know your neighbor behind you a little bit. Turn and face that direction. I'm gonna put my hand out towards that direction. You don't have to do that, but if you want to, you can. And let's thank God, but let's also pray for our future as well. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pause here in this moment just to thank you for this opportunity that you have given us at this season in our history. God, you have blessed us through Unstoppable, and we give you all the praise and all the credit for that. And Father, we are just amazed. We continue to be amazed at all that you were doing in this place. Thank you for the Unstoppable Initiative. But Father, we also pray for our future as you have opened this door to acquire this land. Father, we pray that it be used for your glory. We pray that you be with us in this process, that your hand be upon us, and that we could use this land as a resource to introduce more and more people to your son, Jesus. It's through his name, Christ Jesus, I pray, amen. All right, you can have a seat. Thank you very much. Now, as I was thinking about everything that our church has been experiencing this past week, as I was thinking about that, you know, one verse just kept coming to mind. And it's what Jesus said to the church at Philadelphia in Revelation chapter three. If you remember, we looked at this verse a few weeks ago. Jesus says, I know your works because you have limited strength. See, Jesus, says, I know what's going on in your church. And I know that you're, you consider yourself to be weak right now because you don't have a lot of resources. I know you're getting beat up by the culture around you. But even though you have a little strength, you have kept my word and you have not denied my name. Look, I have placed before you an open door that no one is able to close. See, what Jesus here is saying is, you may have little strength, you may not have all the resources that you need, the culture around you may be beating you up, but because you have kept my word, you've trusted in my name, I am going to continue to give you an open door for kingdom work. And I think that's what we see going on in this place all the time. And that's one of the themes that we've seen in the book of Revelation as we are in our Alpha and Omega series. And I've had a lot of you come to me and say, Chad, thanks so much for going through this series. And it's meant a lot to us because I've been scared to study the book of Revelation in the past, but I'm excited to come to church and dive into Revelation. And I totally get that. I totally understand that. Because as I've shared before, there was a time in my ministry when I was afraid to preach on the book of Revelation because it's intimidating and it's misunderstood and abused and people go crazy about it and there's all these signs and symbols. It's intimidating. And so I just kind of stayed away from the book of Revelation. But as we've been talking about, I think the reason why Revelation uh, is either abused or people are scared of it is because they approach it with the wrong assumptions. See, I assumed years ago that Revelation was supposed to say certain things that maybe it was never supposed to say. It's supposed to answer certain questions that maybe it was never intended to answer. So I started years ago going back to the original context. Why was this book originally written to these first century Christians? Because what it meant to them should also be what it means to us. Because when you take something out of its original context, when, and you try to look at it through modern eyes without going back in history and seeing what was happening when the book was originally written, well, you can take some things out of context and you can get led astray. Uh, 
Tim Tibbles is our worship minister. You guys know Tim. And Tim's son, Corbin, was in his office uh, about a week or so ago. And Corbin found a machine, a piece of equipment that he didn't quite understand. He didn't know what it was. And so he asked his dad about it. And Tim filmed this conversation. Take a look at this video. Okay. Ask me what you just asked me and point to what you're talking about. Does this cell phone machine actually work? What did you call it? Cell phone machine. That right there, you called it a cell phone machine? Yes, I don't know what it's called, so. One more time, what did you call it? Cell phone machine. A cell phone machine. That right there on the wall. Yes. With the number, the number pad, yes. like the quick dials, you call that a cell phone machine. I don't know what else I'll call it. You, would, you, don't, know, you don't have any idea what else that would be called? A cell phone? How about just a telephone? I love that. You know, and I don't blame Corbin at all because he didn't grow up in a day where people use phones on the wall, you know. Now, I did, you probably did, but he didn't. And so I get it. I understand why he would be a little bit confused. And that's what happens when you try to look back at something that maybe took place years ago and you're trying to look at it just through your modern eyes. If you don't look back at the original context, it's easy to misunderstand what that is. And I think that's what happens a lot of times in the book of Revelation. See, Revelation was written 2000 years ago to real people in a real period in history who were really suffering in a very real place in the world. And they were suffering under the oppression of the Roman empire. The Christians in that day were being persecuted. And so John writes to them for a purpose and he tells us this purpose in, Roman, in Revelation 1 verse 3. He says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. Now notice what John says when he opens up the book of Revelation. Revelation is meant to be a blessing. It was never meant to scare the church. It was meant to strengthen it. Revelation is supposed to tell us how we can live under God's blessing in the midst of suffering, in the midst of hard and difficult times. And that's why John says that blessed is the one who keeps what is written in it. This prophecy of Revelation is meant to be obeyed. It's not meant just to fill our heads with knowledge or to cause speculation and all that. It was meant to be obeyed. It was meant to be lived out. In Revelation, when you understand that in its original context, will show you how to live under God's blessing even during crazy and chaotic times. See, Revelation was a letter written to seven churches in the first century world. And it's a letter that was written in a certain genre that we don't have anymore. It's called apocalyptic literature. We don't have this form of literature anymore. It's very popular at the end of the first century. And so we need to understand what this literature was all about because it used these bold and vivid symbols and images in order to wake its readers up to a truth that they were supposed to know but they had forgotten about. In the midst of their suffering at the end of the first century, many Christians were losing sight of the truth of the gospel that they needed to live by, that they needed to obey. And I bring that up because in the passage that we're gonna look at today, we're gonna look at a whole lot of imagery today. And when we look at these images, I don't want you to get lost and I don't want for us to you know, get into debates about every single detail of what these images mean. I don't want us to get so distracted by the details that we miss the overall point. So 
again, this series is supposed to be an overview of Revelation. And we're just gonna look at the high points, but this is what I want for us to realize. I want for us to realize that the whole point of this passage is this, Jesus is worth it. Don't lose sight of that. We may disagree over what every image means. We may not always understand what Revelation is talking about, but this is the point of the passage that we're gonna read today. Jesus is worth it. And I think we can all agree upon that. And that's the message that the first century church needed to hear. And that's what we're gonna see being told to them through Revelation six and seven, because the church was suffering and nothing will warp our spiritual vision like pain and suffering. John Weiss in his book, Jesus Prom, uses this analogy. He says, there are more nearsighted people in New York City than any other city in our country. Because of all the tall buildings, they're limited to short distances. They rarely have to use their sight for these long distances. So their eyes adjust and grow accustomed to looking at what is right in front of them. And on a spiritual level, I think we can understand how this can happen. See, we get so focused on the pain and the suffering and the trouble that's in front of us, the problems that are in front of us, that we forget to look beyond those things to God's greater picture. And so we become spiritually nearsighted. We're only looking at what we immediately see and we don't see God's bigger plan, God's bigger picture beyond the pain and the suffering that is right in front of us. And nothing can cause spiritual nearsightedness more than suffering and pain and heartache and loss. And so in Revelation 6 and 7, what we find out is that God allows suffering for a season, for a temporary time, but everything is still under his control. And he allows it because he is going to use it to carry out his greater purposes. So we left off in Revelation chapter five last week and Jesus, the Lamb of God, was on the throne holding a scroll. And this scroll represented God's decreed plan for history, God's decreed plan in order to save and rescue, redeem his world through Jesus. And this scroll that Jesus was holding had seven seals on it. And what we see in Revelation chapter six is that Jesus is going to open up this scroll, opening up these seven seals. Now, in recent years especially, there's been a lot of debate about what these seven seals represent, and people have all these theories and whatever else, and there's a lot of misunderstandings about these seven seals. And I think the reason for these misunderstandings is, again, we are trying to look at this through our modern Western American eyes rather than as these first century readers would have looked at these seven seals. Because when we, in our modern Western world, when we read a story, we like to read it sequentially. We like to read everything as in sequence, in a linear fashion. In other words, this event happened, and then this event happened, and then this event happened, and then this event happened, and we like to read things in order like that. But in the, near, in the ancient Near East, which is when the book of Revelation was written, and also especially when it comes to apocalyptic literature, they didn't always tell stories like that. In fact, one of the tools that apocalyptic literature would use was the tool of overlapping stories. So they would tell multiple events that were happening at the same time, that were intertwined, that would work together. And so 
when we read the seven seals, the first century readers, they weren't looking at these at seven separate events or seven separate periods in history. They were looking at seven things that were all happening at the same time. Remember, it's seven seals, but it's one scroll. It's one plan that's all being carried out under God's control. That's why Bob Lowry, who taught for years at Lincoln Christian Seminary, writes this in his commentary. He says, the various sections of Revelation are concurrent rather than successive. They overlap while intensifying at the same time, always bringing us to the end of the world. Let me illustrate it like this. Let me give you a modern illustration. If I were to state these five statements, you might think that they were five different events. I went to a game at Rupp Arena to watch Kentucky play basketball. I've done that several times. I ate Chick-fil-A for dinner. I like Chick-fil-A. I had a nice conversation with my wife. Every now and then I do. I got ice cream. Um, I like ice cream, don't eat it much, but I do like it. And then I saw an old friend. I always love to get caught up with an old friend. You might read those five statements and think, okay, those are five separate events that happened in my life. However, if you've ever been to a game at Rupp Arena and you know that context because you've been there before, you know that all five of these things could happen during the same event. Because you can go to a game at Rupp Arena and they have a Chick-fil-A inside Rupp Arena where you can order Chick-fil-A food. You can also go to the game with your spouse, which I often do. And so I could have a nice conversation with my wife while the game is going on. They also have ice cream and it's famous ice cream. Just ask Jay Billis. Every time he calls a game at Rupp Arena, he talks about the soft serve ice cream. You can get ice cream while you're there. And normally when I go to Rupp Arena, especially since I've moved to Oklahoma, I see somebody I haven't seen for a while. So I get caught up with an old friend. All five of these statements could be describing five separate events, but... They could also be describing five things that happen at the same event, right? And that's what's happening here in these seven seals. We see seven seals, but they're all happening together to help describe what is taking place in the last days. Mark Moore, who used to teach at Ozark Christian College, writes this in his commentary. He says, this is not a description of what will take place, nor is this what did take place. This is a description of what always takes place. Because when we open up these seals, or when Jesus opens up the seals and we read about it, what we see are things like famine and war and bloodshed and sickness and death and economic collapse. And here's the thing. If you try to say that any of those things just happen at a certain period in time, well, you run into a problem. Because all those things have been happening throughout the history of the church. Famine, war, bloodshed, sickness, death, economic calamity. It's been happening all throughout the history of the church. And in fact, sometimes those things have been worse in other periods of history than what they are right now. See, I think what this is describing is what takes place throughout the last days. And so that leads us to another question. One question I could ask a whole lot is this. Chad, are we living in the last days? Well, we don't even have to turn to the book of Revelation to answer that question. The New Testament writers tell us that before we ever get to the book of Revelation. Look at what Hebrews says. This is when the apostles, you know, were still alive, the majority of them, and they're writing in their day and age in the first century, and they say, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways during the Old Testament age. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. In the past, God spoke to us in various ways, but in these last days, God has spoken to us through Jesus, his son. What are they saying? We are now, 
living in the last days because the moment that God started speaking to his people through his son, that represents the last days. But then look at what we find out in Acts chapter two. This is the day that the church began. And on the day that the church began, remember the spirit descended and the apostles launched the church and preached the gospel and 3,000 were baptized. And everybody on that day was wondering what is going on, what's happening. And listen to how Peter and the other apostles explain what's happening. They quote Old Testament scripture and they say, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. What is Peter saying? He's telling the crowds, this is a sign we're now in the last days. You see the spirit descending on all people, living in all people. And now that the spirit is living among God's people, this is a sign that we are now in the last days. And that's why when you read throughout the New Testament, you will see repeated examples of the apostles writing as if Jesus could come back in their day. Why do you think that John ends the book of Revelation saying, come Lord Jesus? If he had seen all these visions and knew, well, it's not gonna be for thousands and thousands of years until Jesus ever comes back. Why would he say, come Lord Jesus? And it's in the, in the immediate tense because he knows it could happen at any time because the moment that Jesus came and started his church, that was the commencement of the last days, the last period of the earth. And so we don't even have to answer that question. The Bible answers it for us. And so what I think we see happening in Revelation chapter six is what's gonna be taking place in these last days. So Jesus opens up the scroll and John writes, I watched as the lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, come. Now let's pause right there because these first four seals that Jesus is going to open up, they are unique from the rest of them because all four of these seals are accompanied by a horse of a certain color and a rider on that horse. We see there's a white horse, a red horse, a black horse, and a pale horse. These are often referred to in modern literature as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. You've probably heard that term before. Now, typically when you hear about the four horsemen of the apocalypse, it's a bad thing, right? Like it's something that should cause fear and terror or whatever else, it's a bad thing. And when we look at these first four seals, the first seal, second seal, third seal, fourth seal, white, red, black, and pale horse, I think the last three, that is a bad thing. I'm not so sure about the first one though. Let's read what John sees. And again, put aside our rigid assumptions, put aside what everybody's told us. Let's just read what the Bible says. And look at what Revelation 6, 2 says. I looked and behold, a white horse and its rider had a bow, which represents conqueror. He's a conqueror. And a crown, which represents victory, was given to him. And he came out conquering and to conquer, meaning he came out victorious and he continued to be victorious. I love how another translation puts this verse. It says, I looked and there before me was a white horse the rider on the horse held a bow and was given a crown. He rode out to defeat the enemy and win the victory. Now, if you didn't know any different and if no one had told you that the four horsemen of the apocalypse are all evil and bad, who would you think this describes? It sounds like Jesus to me. And here's how we know. First of all, he's wearing white. Do you realize that every single time in the book of Revelation, when someone is wearing white, they are always on God's team. There's not one example ever of someone wearing white who's not on God's team. This would be the only example of somebody wearing white who's a bad guy, if it's true that this is a bad guy. 
Now, every time somebody wears white, it's always given to them by God. They're on God's team. Second, it says that he's wearing a crown, not just any crown. This is a special Greek word, the Stephanos crown, which was the crown that was given to the ultimate victor. Who is the ultimate victor? Who is the one who is victorious over all? Jesus. And then he's carrying a bow. He's a conqueror. Who's known for being more than conquerors in the New Testament? Jesus, church. Not only that, when we read on in Revelation chapter 19, we see that the rider on the white horse comes back. And look at how John describes the rider on the white horse in Revelation 19. It says, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called what? Faithful and true. And then John goes on to say, with justice, he judges and makes war. His name is the word of God. Who's known for being the word of God? John chapter one, in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God. It's talking about Jesus. Jesus is the word. See this rider on the white horse, I think it's Jesus. And I think what this represents is as God's plan is opened up, Jesus is taking his gospel out to the world through his church. We are more than conquerors. We are called to be those who go out and conquer the darkness with the light of the gospel. This is the great commission. This is Jesus sending his church, sending his gospel out into the world. And he is leading us. And by the way, This was the earliest view of Revelation. In fact, James Smith writes in his commentary, he says, the oldest interpretation was that the rider on the white horse represents Christ. The language suggests that unlike worldly warlords, the rider makes genuine and lasting conquest. John brackets the Christian age with two appearances of Christ on a white horse carrying a weapon in his hand. The earliest church fathers, in the earliest days of the church, they believed this ride on the white horse was Jesus. It wasn't until recent years that people started to change that. So you may disagree with me, that's okay. But I'm convinced this is Jesus. And that's how God's plan starts, with Jesus taking the gospel out to the world through his church. And as Jesus takes the gospel out, this is what's going to happen to his people. We see still number two. Still number two is a red horse. Don't have time to read all this. I encourage you to go back and read it later. But when you look at the description, what we find out is this horse represents war, disruption of peace and bloodshed. See, all throughout the history of the church, there has been wars taking place. See, men are always at war. And just because we're followers of Jesus doesn't mean that we are exempt from the consequences of war. There are always gonna be battles taking place and there's never been a period in church history where there haven't been wars happening somewhere on the earth. That's what Jesus says. There will always be wars and rumors of wars. And so because of that, we are affected by it. We may not cause the wars. We may not even participate in the wars at times, but we are still affected by men fighting. And what Jesus here is saying is just because you're on my team doesn't mean you're not still going to experience suffering because of the wars that men are conducting. But then we see still number three, Still number three is a black horse. And this horse represents economic collapse and famine. We know this because this rider on the black horse is carrying some scales. And then we see people are crying out as this horseman goes out, a quart of wheat for a day's wages and three quarts of barley for a day's wages. That terminology means that people are living below the poverty line. People are barely surviving. People are working all day long and they can't buy enough food to eat. That's what this means. See, this black horse recommends, uh, represents economic collapse. And all throughout the history of the church, God's people continue to be affected by the decisions that the kingdoms of this world make when it comes to their economies. And we can't always control what happens in the economies of this world. We are affected by those things. But what Jesus is saying, even though 
Economies will be up and down. I'm still in charge and you're not exempt from what goes on in the world around you. And then as we read on, we see seal number four, which is a pale horse. And this word pale in the Greek is the word that was used that when the color would leave someone's face when they were sick or even when they were dying. See, this last horse that we meet, he represents, and this rider represents sickness, disease, and death. And again, there's never been a period throughout church history when sickness and plagues, pandemics, and death haven't affected God's people throughout the world. You see, these are all means of suffering that everyone experiences, both Christian and non-Christian alike. And sometimes we get this idea that, well, hey, if I'm a follower of Jesus, then I won't suffer like the rest of the world does. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying for a season, for a temporary time, you're going to experience suffering from war, from fighting, from bloodshed, from economic collapse, from sickness, from death. You're going to experience suffering just like everybody else. But the difference is your hope is in me. Now, Jesus does go on to warn us and let us know there will be a type of suffering that will be exclusive to God's people. Because when you push against the darkness, the darkness pushes back. So we get the next seal. We get seal number five, which represents Christian persecution. And if you were to read this passage, again, I encourage you to go back and do this. I just don't have time to read all of this text. But we see Christians suffering for their faith. They're being martyred for their faith and they're on an altar being sacrificed, basically. And as they're being sacrificed because of their faith, they cry out to God and listen to what they say. They called out in a loud voice, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe. There's that color white again, right? And they were told to wait a little longer. See, these Christians are suffering and they're being persecuted just because of their faith and they're crying out to God, how long, oh Lord? And I get this. You ever prayed that prayer? You've been going through a rough season, a rough patch and you've, you're experiencing pain and suffering and trouble and you just cry out, God, how much longer? How long, oh Lord? And God responds to his children who are crying out and by handing them a white robe, which was a sign of acceptance saying, you're part of my people. And he says, wait just a little bit longer. What is God doing here? God's saying, it's not gonna last forever, I promise. I've got this, I've got a plan that's being carried out. And listen, no one else may recognize your value. No one else may recognize your worth. No one else may see you for who you really are. But I haven't forgotten about you. I see you, you are mine, you belong to me. I'm giving you this white robe to let you know that you are mine. And I will make sure in the end that you are taken care of. Just wait a little while longer for my plan to be carried out and the world will know that you are mine. And so what we see is the reason why God doesn't take away suffering immediately isn't because he can't, but it's because he's allowing it to happen for a greater purpose. You see, over and over again in this passage, when we see like these horsemen go out, it says in the text that they were given power. In other words, evil doesn't have power on its own just to do whatever it wants. Evil is only allowed to do what God allows for it to do because everything is under his control. What is this telling us? History is all under God's control. History belongs to God. He's got this. And he is going to make sure that his people in the end are taken care of. But if this is the case, why does he allow for suffering? Well, 
if our faith is never tested, how do we know it's real? If our faith is never tested, how do we know we really love God? How do we know we're really committed to him? How do we know that we're really faithful to him? If our faith is never tested, how do we know it's real? Because this is what suffering does. First of all, suffering humbles us. Guys, I can't tell you how many times in my life I have been way too full of myself. And I've let pride get in the way and I've been arrogant. And then I go through a season of suffering. And you know what that does? It reminds me who's really in control. It humbles me. And I start to rely on God in a way like I hadn't been. And I start to trust him more. And honestly, as I get through that suffering, I normally come to the realization that's exactly what I needed for me to have the right perspective. Suffering also grows us because we can become spiritually stagnant over time. And suffering forces us again to rely on God more so that we dive into a deeper relationship with him and we become more spiritually mature. It grows us. But suffering also displays God's power within us because when we continue to acknowledge him and live for him in the midst of trials, the world notices that. And God uses our troubles as a testimony to show the world who he is. God uses suffering for his greater purposes. But that doesn't mean that suffering is easy. And that's why these early Christians shout out, or the Christians we see in this passage shout out, how long, O Lord? And then they get their answer as the next seal is revealed, seal number six. Because seal number six is God's accountability. See, in seal number six, if we were to read this, you would see things like the earthquaking and the sun turning black and the moon turning red and stars falling from the sky and the sky receding like a scroll. And this language has been something that people wanna latch onto and they've got all these different interpretations for what this means and people sometimes go crazy with this stuff. But the first readers of Revelation would have known exactly what this meant because this same language is found all throughout the Old Testament over and over and over again. This language is used in the Old Testament. These exact same images are used in the Old Testament when God brings judgment upon an evil and wicked nation. You know what's happening here? God is saying evil will not go unpunished. A day of reckoning is coming. And for a season, God allows for Satan to do his thing. For a season, God allows evil to do his thing. But a day is coming when all sin, all evil will be punished. God is not going to let evil go unpunished because everyone will have to stand before God one day. He, he will hold the world accountable. That's what Paul tells us in the book of Romans, for we will all appear before the judgment seat of God. And here's the thing. When those who don't know Jesus stand before God's judgment seat, they can't stand anymore. They're terrified, they're scared. And that's what we see happening here because we get a picture here of those who have put all their faith, all their stock, all their hope in the world and look at what happens. It says, then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? So you know what's going on here? All these people that have put all their faith and hope and trust in the things of this world, what they have lived for is now unraveling. And when they finally have to stand before God, they realize they've lived for nothing. 
that nothing that they've acquired, nothing that they've desired, nothing that they've chased after, nothing that they've built up will last. And they stand before God empty and naked and totally alone. And in the presence of the almighty, holy God, the Alpha and the Omega, the only thing that they can say is we would rather have rocks fall on us than stand in his presence. Because what they have lived for is totally unraveling. And they ask the question, who can stand? Who can stand in the presence of Almighty God? And in Revelation chapter seven, we get our answer. We get our answer because what God kind of does here is he rewinds the tape and he says, haven't you been paying attention? There is someone who can stand, not just someone. There's a whole group of people who are gonna be able to stand in total assurance, total confidence before me. He first refers to them as the 144,000. I don't have time to get into this. I wish I did, <laughs> but let me just briefly explain this. 144,000 is a multiple of 12. Remember, we've talked about this. 12 is a number that's symbolic for God's people. 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament, 12 apostles who started the church in the New Testament. 12 represents God's people. And this number here is 12 times 12 times 1,000. God's Old Testament people, God's New Testament people times 1,000 because 1,000 was their infinite number. Like we would say today, it happened a billion times. You know, we're just giving out an infinite number. That's what the number 1,000 was. They didn't have the term billion back in that day and age, okay? So they're just saying, this is an infinite number of God's people who are able to stand before the presence of God in total assurance and total confidence. And then the passage goes on to tell us again who these people are. So in case you didn't understand what these numbers meant, look at what John goes on to say. It was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne in front of the lamb. They were wearing white robes. There's those white robes again. And were holding palm branches, a sign of victory in their hands. It's people from every nation, every tribe on earth standing before God because they are those who are wearing the white robes, who belong to Jesus and they can stand before God in total assurance and confidence because of the grace of Jesus. But then in case you missed it, John gives us one more description here of these, of the same group. He says, these are the ones who have come out of the great suffering. They have washed their robes with the blood of the lamb and they are clean and white. So now these people are before the throne of God, standing before God's throne, and they are able to worship God day and night in his temple and his presence. And the one who sits on the throne will protect them. See, those who stand before Jesus now will stand with Jesus forever. That's what this passage is telling us. You may suffer a little while now. You may go through some trials right now, but those who stand with Jesus now will stand with him forever. And so when you live in this world and Satan's doing his thing, always remember Jesus is worth it because those who stand with him now will stand with him forever. It's why years ago when I first started preaching or learning to preach, I was still a student and I heard that there was a nursing home who had services on Sunday and they always were looking for somebody to preach. And so I showed up, my mom came with me and come to find out you had to do everything. You had to like lead the singing and serve communion and you know, do everything and not just preach. And so my mom played the piano because she can do that. And I'll never forget, I went there several weeks and I'll never forget the singing in that room because we would sing the old hymns. They pull out hymnals and a lot of the residents couldn't even read the hymnals anymore, but still we would sing the old hymns and most of them knew them by heart. 
And as I would look around that room, I would see people, residents who were immobile, people who had strokes, who were unable to communicate like they wanted to. There's one man who was blind, people who couldn't take care of themselves, people who were sick, people who were literally dying. And I'm looking around at this room and we would start to sing praises to God and they would sing so loud they would almost shake the room. They would sing at the top of their lungs. It was off key, but it was beautiful. And even as a young student, I remember standing there thinking, most people in our world today would look at this group and say, these people don't have a whole lot to live for anymore. But they had everything to live for because they had Jesus. And what that shows us is when you get to the end of this life, whenever that day comes, everything else will be stripped from you. And if you have nothing left but Jesus, then you have everything. You have it all. Because the only thing that matters in the end is if you've been standing with Jesus all along. Because those who stand with him now will stand with him forever. And so then after this, we see the seventh seal, the final seal open because God's plan is now complete. And when he opened the seventh seal, it says there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. And then after that, we see that the praise in heaven will ramp back up. But for half an hour, there was silence. And I think what's going on here, this brief pause is because all of heaven, all of God's people, when God's plan is finally fulfilled, the seventh seal is open, everybody just takes a deep breath. And there's silence from all the noise, all the chaos, all the sin that's been around them for so long. And everybody just takes a deep breath because there's peace everywhere. And then after the silence is over, the praise ramps back up and that's what God's people experience for all eternity. I don't know about you, but I wanna stand with Jesus forever. And that's why I'm standing with him now. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for today and I thank you for this time we've had to celebrate what you're doing in this place, but also to be encouraged from reading from the book of Revelation. May we go out and be a people who stand with your son every single day. In Jesus' name, amen.